Well, at the end of this long, intense day, we want to bring to our prayer, as this day winds down, the consideration of ordinary life. With the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph set before our eyes and our hearts for this retreat, we can't escape the fact that the scriptures are almost silent about everything that took place in their life. We get glimpses, especially at the events surrounding the Incarnation and the birth of Christ. We learn a little bit about those early days, the flight into Egypt, settling again at Nazareth. We see the Holy Family in Jerusalem as the Lord is inexplicably separated from their group traveling back to Nazareth after having been in the holy city of Jerusalem for the Passover. And then the gospel is silent. There's nothing else. We know that from other scenes in the gospel that that Joseph had a good reputation as a worker and a carpenter because Jesus is identified as the carpenter's son. Um, But we really don't have any other details of their life. We know that Mary was there at Cana um, and she gives us the impression of kind of being in charge of that reception. So she might have been, you know, kind of the person that people would go to when there was some special need. She also gives me the impression, I think it'd be fair to say that she was the fun mom on the block, you know, and the kids would all want to hang out at their house. I'm sure that's true. But the rest is silent. But that silence speaks to us. Because filling that silence is an ordinary family life, daily life, the ups and downs of daily life, work, conversations, meals, um, talking about the weather. We can imagine that as the Lord grew, especially after the death of St. Joseph, that he and the Blessed Mother spoke more intensely about his divine mission and what was about to unfold. But again, we have no indication of that in the gospel. We have silence, which is to say we have normalcy. If someone were to write a a biography of our lives or a kind of sweeping history of our family, most of the pages would be blank because they would say, well, everyone got up, Um, mom or dad, maybe both made breakfast for the kids and lunch They sent them off on the bus to school or took them to school. Uh, Parents went off to work or maybe mom worked at home, uh, although she may have worked as well. And then the kids came back and then the parents came back and they had dinner, they went to bed. And the second page of the biography, same thing happened. And third page of the biography, ditto. And then maybe every now and then there's something extraordinary that comes up, you know, something memorable. The house burned down. You know, let's hope that didn't happen. There was an earthquake that's more likely to happen around here. And, and some of the dishes broke because they fell off the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, 
of the dining room table or something. But most of those pages would be blank if we're looking for interesting things. Because most of our life is filled with just normal things. And you know, and thanks be to God, if it was filled with excitement and sort of intensity every single day, we couldn't stand it. It would be too much. It would be just too much. But there's, a, there's something in there to be uncovered when we realize, well, Jesus had a kind of, the kind of life, in certain respects, that we have. Now, obviously we know, if we've, we, we keep this in the back of our mind throughout this, this whole series of meditations, we know that the family life of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph was absolutely perfect. Okay. Our family life is not absolutely perfect. But it is absolutely ordinary. And even in that sort of spiritual and mystical and, and, and uh, sanctifying perfection of the Holy Family, again, it was filled with ordinary things. And what does that teach us? Well, that God values ordinary things. And that ordinary things are important. And what makes them important is what? It's love, doing them with love. To honor God and to help others. Because if we think about it, if the only thing that we can offer to God and the only part of our life that's worthwhile in God's eyes are the extraordinary things, you know, there's not going to be much of worth or value. Because those things are few and far between. No, he, he values ordinary things because that's the life he gave his divine son. And, you know, go live there. I'm going to create a family for you and, go, and you're going to live there and just you're going to do normal stuff. And you're going to teach everybody that normal things are important. The Gospels tell us in the Gospel of Luke after the Lord's finding in the temple. I think I mentioned earlier it was Matthew. That was wrong. It was Luke. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things hidden in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And we know that he led such a normal life that when the Lord finally entered the synagogue at the, at the beginning of his public life, the synagogue in Nazareth, surrounded by people who knew him, by people who had grown up with him, we're told that upon, upon hearing his commentary on the Torah, on the Word of God, the people in the synagogue were saying, where, where did he get all this stuff? Where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these mighty works, the Scripture says? This is in Matthew 13. Is this not the carpenter's son? In other words, who does he think he is? And we're told that they took offense at him because they thought he was a little too big for his britches. And what does that tell us? That he led an ordinary life. Up to that point, you know, he was leading an ordinary life. And the takeaway for us, for you and for me, and what's, very, what's valuable for us, is that our daily concerns and our daily occupations and the routine of our life have a sanctifying value when they're animated by the love of God. Because we can put the love of God into anything that is good. We can't put it into things that are evil. You know, we can't say, I'm going to go rob a bank out of love for God. That's not going to fly. Um, but we can't say, I'm going to wash the dishes out of love for God. I'm going to be patient with my husband out of love for God. I'm going to be understanding towards my children, my grandchildren, 
out of love for God. I'm really going to um, try to listen patiently and with understanding to my friend or relative or whomever out of love for God. And you know, when ordinary life is illuminated that way, when it's illuminated by faith, we discover the value of little things. What does St. Paul say in the letter to the Colossians? Your life now is hidden with Christ and God. He speaks to the early Christians saying your life is hidden now with Christ and God, which is to say that everything in your life, because you are a Christian, everything that is good can be made into something that is holy insofar it is done for the love of God. And you know, to do things for the love of God simply means to make a decision. It doesn't mean that we're filled with warm feelings. If that happens, it's great, that's a help to us. Or that we have this overflowing interior sensations you know, of affection for God. That may happen, but it's not all that common that would happen all the time. To do things for the love of God is simply to make a decision. It's an act of the will. We'll talk a little bit about that in our next conference, which is about cultivating faith, hope, and charity and seeing the home and family life as a means of concretely cultivating those, those virtues that are given by God, the, the theological virtues. But we, we put the love of God into things when we simply make a decision and say, Lord, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it with patience and with, with kindness and with a kind of alacrity and with, with, uh, with intensity out of love for you. So we go off to work and we're faced with some task that we don't really want to do, but it's part of our job, or it's not something very exciting or something very engaging. Maybe we have to file a hundred papers or something or put them in order, or maybe we have to deal with an employee who's under our authority who's a little bit difficult, or maybe we have to write out a project report on something, or we have some other tasks to do, or we're working at home and we have to... I don't make the bed or do the laundry or vacuum the, um, the living room or wash the windows. Does anyone ever do that, wash the windows? No one likes to wash the windows, okay? And, uh, or clean the bathroom. And we say, you know, Lord, I don't like this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to offer this little bit of effort. I'm going to offer this little bit of effort out of love for you. And maybe for some special intentions or maybe for my husband or maybe for one of my kids or grandkids is having a hard time with something. Or maybe I'm going to offer it in thanksgiving for the sisters for having provided a great retreat. Or maybe I'm just going to offer it in thanksgiving because you're so good to me. And then that, that simple human act becomes something that is spiritualized. Something that has spiritual value. Because we've assigned it some spiritual value. Because we've kind of invested some spiritual capital into that deed. So we want to do it well, we want to finish it well and then move on to the next thing. And then it can, becomes a mean, it can become a means of prayer and contemplation, you know, because we're talking to the Lord as we're doing these things. And that's, no one observing us would be able to see anything different. No one would say, oh boy, she's really filing those papers with a supernatural outlook today. No, they would just say, boy, she's efficient, she's getting the job done. And why? Because, you know, we're trying to be generous and, again, putting the virtues at work 
in the middle of our daily activities. And we can imagine that the Holy Family acted that way. That when Jesus was working beside St. Joseph, he offered that human toil because we know he would be tired if he worked. Because we're told that he was tired at various times in the gospel because so many people would come to him and he'd be up late and you know, they'd ask for his blessings and for his words of comfort and for miracles and for prayer and he'd be exhausted and even though he was exhausted, sometimes he'd spend all night in prayer. So humanly speaking, the Lord experienced fatigue as we would when we work hard. And, but we can imagine in the midst of all of his work, he was, you know, even in his human nature, had this constant dialogue with his heavenly father. We can imagine Mary doing the same thing as she's caring for the home and again visiting sick neighbors and planning wedding receptions, that she was doing all that for the love of God, to bring joy to other people. I've always thought it was great that the first public miracle the Lord performs, he was changing water into wine in a party where there was dancing. It, it, um, it kind of sets the stage for the unfolding of the mystery of redemption, that God has sent, the Father has sent his divine Son into the world in the form of human flesh in order to bring joy to the world, in order to bring happiness to each person. And, it, and not just a kind of superficial joy or happiness, but one that springs from the goodness of life and from holiness of life. And that, that springing forth can take place in the midst of ordinary things. And it seems to me that we should really strive to have really high aspirations uh, in the ordinary events of our life. We want really to, them to have really uh, a deep and abiding value and not to be satisfied with kind of mediocre, uh, mediocre spiritual goals. So what are some of the concrete ways we can do that in family life in particular, the life of the home? Well, one of the things is to really pay attention to details of affection. And be, even if someone's been married 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, those details of affection are important. Doing little things for each other. And even when those details of affection maybe are not shown by one spouse as much as one would like. The other spouse, the one who's listening to these words, can still show those details, can still see, well, this is, you know, this is, instead of always seeking what I need, instead of telling my husband all the time, you know, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this which is a way of saying, look, what I really need is for you to do this. What I really need is for you to do that. And it may be fair at times to tell the guys that because sometimes, you know, we're oblivious to what's important. Uh, it's just it's part of the way we're made, I'm afraid. But, but instead of looking at what we need to receive, I think it's more important to look at what we should be giving. What does my husband need from me? What does he need from me at this moment? He may need for me to go in the other room. <laughs> so, <yeah>. uh, <laughs> and I might need that too, you know, after a while. Um, but what he may need is just some little act of attention or kindness. What he may need is just a kind word instead of a list of things that he has to do. He knows what those things are. Because quite frankly, if we give the kind word first, 
then after we've kind of established the tone, then, then I think we could, we're, we're able to say more effectively those words which are also kind, but maybe a little more directive, you know. But if we begin with, with an abundance of kindness, thinking, what can I do to make him happy today? What can I do to make his life easier today? That's something I suggest to little kids when they're preparing for their first confession or, you know, the youngsters in the school or in the little ones in the CCE to, you know, uh, to get them to think about, you know, being of service to others and of growing in charity to say, well, you know, why don't you think about maybe one thing every day you can do for your mom to make her life easier or do something for your dad to make his life easier or to make him happy. Tell your mom you like her shoes. Girls love shoes. And you tell them, you know, that you, you like her shoes. That'll make her happy. Or your hair looks really good today, mom. They love that stuff. Or even better, doing your chores before you're asked. Or, you know, if you see the dryer is full of towels, go in there and fold them up so that one of your parents doesn't have to do it. Just little things. Uh, and those are pretty little, they seem like big things to a little kid, but they're little things. What can I do to help this person, whether it's my husband, whether it's a family member, whether it's someone I'm, uh, I'm dealing with in friendship or maybe a neighbor, what can I do to make their life happy? What can I do to make that obnoxious driver on the freeway next to me happy? Okay, I'm going to let him cut in front of me even though he's not using his turn signal, that'll make him happy. It'll make me happy because it gets him out of my way, too. Um, what can I do to make the people around me happy? What can I do to make their life easier? That reorients our heart and reorients our mind away from ourselves. And that sanctifies that moment because it fills it with charity. And it all comes down, you know, we can let the guy in front of us or the gal in front of us on the freeway, whether we do it out of charity or not. And they may take that spot in front of us whether we want them to or not. And they may cut it really close if we're not giving them enough room. But if we make the decision to respond, to give them something that will make their life easier, that one little act which will slow us down on our way to our destination, maybe by five seconds, then that, that same action, instead of being forced upon us as something that we freely give, it's a small act of charity. It reorients our heart, things of God. It seems like unconsequential, but you'd be surprised how many people confess road rage, you know? <laughs> they, you know, and they say, oh, it's, I'm, I'm terrible on the freeways and all of that. Because if you drive a lot, that's a, that's a real source of frustration. Um, but what if, you know, we have to know when we're getting on the freeway, we're kind of going into battle. And remember, when we go into battle, we need a strategy and we need weapons. And our strategy is, is to obey the traffic laws. And our weapons are charity. Okay? Our weapon is not to ram everybody right, or to refuse to let anyone get in front of us, or to slam on our brakes to discourage the person who's tailgating us. You know, we are, uh, we're going into battle, literally, so, but our weapons are still spiritual weapons. Think how much easier our life would be if we treated all those crazy drivers around us with uh, charity and with patience and um, 
not worrying about winning because it's not going to change our life if we're slowed down by a minute or two. It all comes down to our making a decision to infuse virtues, to virtues operate in any particular moment. Another thing that we can do concretely, you know, is, and I mentioned this earlier, and we all know this to be true because we're grateful when people do this for us, is, is learn to listen well and learn to listen to what a person is really saying because they may be dancing around the topic that's really important to them because they don't know how to express themselves or they may be embarrassed or whatever the case may be or they're not good at it, they're not a good communicator. Um, You know, it's very funny when you think about communication between spouses. There are different expectations. The man has different expectations than his wife, typically. And, you know, when I said earlier that men bring a photograph and women bring the photo album, uh, you know, in, in a lot of conversations, men want an answer, women want a story. I, that's not absolutely true, but I think more or less it's true. It's just the way our minds are different and we think differently, we express ourselves differently. And so, you know, at the end of the day, the wife may say to her husband, how was your day, honey? Fine. Uh, well, what did you do? Uh, nothing, nothing unusual, just normal. And the wife is frustrated because she wants her husband to say, well, you know, I got up in the morning, as you know, and I made breakfast for the kids and took them off to school. And then I, I got on the 705 and I drove down to Long Beach to work in the docks. And I, you know, there's a lot of traffic and all the trucks were coming by. And this one guy almost swiped me off the road. But I was, you know, I kind of reacted so I could get around. it. And then um, they want to blow, blow, blow all the way, right? Um, and most men are just not going to program to kind of give that kind of detail. And then when the wife, the husband asks his wife, how was your day, honey? She goes, well, you know, I got up in the morning and made breakfast for the kids and dropped off at school. And, then, and the guy just wants, fine. That's all he wants. He just wants to hear an answer. He doesn't want the story. So in learning to listen to somebody, we have to learn to listen to them in the way they, want, they need to express themselves. Right? To give them the freedom to express themselves. The way they need to, not the way we want them to. And... Uh, and that really helps to cultivate a good spirit of communication with any person because they see, oh, they're respecting me the way I am and the way I express myself. And that gives them the freedom to express themselves differently and maybe more completely and maybe more effectively. So learning to listen, learning to listen well. And, you know, also another good thing that we can do in family life and the ordinary things so that they, we can sanctify them uh, is... Um, not fighting over things that aren't important. And, I mean, everybody, I think one of the greatest um, challenges of marriage is after the honeymoon, when both the wife and the husband realize they move into their home or their apartment, wherever they're settled in, and they realize that they're going to be sharing a bathroom with someone else for the rest of their life. And they're not used to it. 
at least they're not used to sharing, the women are not used to sharing with another, with a man, and the men are not used to sharing with women who approach these things in different ways, maybe. But learning not to fight over little things. You know, accepting the quirks of another person. If they're just, you know, little ways of doing things that may be different from our way, but there's nothing wrong about it, and it's not disruptive, you know. Um, and we have to be careful not to become eccentric, where we expect everybody to do everything the way we would do it. Otherwise, it has no value. We have to learn to compromise in these things. In other words, to, not to fight over little things. Not to fight over the things that are unimportant. And again, this is something that can be sanctifying for us because it, what does it do? It requires a lot of patience. It requires a lot of generosity. You could talk to any of the sisters who live here, who live, uh, and I'm saying this without having spoken to them about this, but I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. They'll tell you religious life is, you know, because it's a family life and they all live, you know, as a family, whether they're in a convent in a parish with four or five sisters or whether at the mother house here with a larger number of sisters, you have to learn to make little compromises because, you know, everybody is a little bit different and they have little ways of doing things that may be a little bit different and you've got to respect those things. And even if it's one little thing, you know, that drives a person crazy, St. Teresa of Avila, the Holy Mother there, um, you know, wrote in, in, in her autobiography how one of the nuns would drive her crazy because she would always rattle her rosary beads on the pew, on the choir stall. And of course, Teresa Avila wanted some silence in the choir. But there's this nun kind of just nervously, you know, it's like my phone going off at mass today. You could hear the alarm going beep, 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 beep. I'm trying to ignore it, you know. And, uh, and she said, well, that was a little thing she had to offer. To God. Did she correct the nun and say, hey, listen, nun, you're making a racket. Settle down. Put those rosary beads in your pocket or keep your hands away or do something. Don't rattle them on the choir stall. She didn't because it's not a big deal. And she saw this is a little mortification I can offer. And it shows patience to this other sister who was older than she was. It's a way of respecting her. And she didn't take her rosary beads and start rattling them even louder, you know, it's a little bit of revenge. Or clapping her hymnal by this nun's ear, you know. She just let it go. You know, and when you live in a small community and you're spending all day together, those little things can easily be blown out of proportion. It was true when I was living in the seminary. Little bitty things can be blown out of proportion and not important. It's true in a family. Little things would not bother you outside the family, in the home, may drive you crazy. But we have to stop and say, well, this is not that important. If it is important, we need to do something about it, right? I mean, obviously, we don't want the kids playing with matches in the middle of the floor, you know, the living room and lighting the house on fire and hurting themselves. But um, if it's a little thing, we can let it go. And, you know, I heard a priest once saying a homily for a, a wedding mass he said to the bride and the groom, I'll just call them John and Mary. I don't remember what their names were. It's been so long. He said, John, your path to holiness, your path to heaven is named Mary. And Mary, your path to heaven is named John. And that's true for all of you who are married. Your path to holiness and to eternal life is your spouse. And you are your spouse's path. Sometimes it's a rocky road. But most of the time it's not. That you're there to help each other go to heaven. 
Your main task for your children is to be an instrument to lead them to eternal life. Now, that's ultimately in God's hands, but we can help create the dispositions that opens a person to that, uh, to that reality, that expectation, that hope. So let's take that to our prayer this, this evening as we wrap up our day. And ask the Lord to help us to find in the ordinary circumstances of our life, whatever our situation is, to find, help us to see how we can sanctify, make holy, which is to say, infuse with virtue all of those common deeds and acts and routines that fill our day. And to help us to see that just as Jesus lived such an ordinary and uneventful life, and yet in, in, infused that life with his divine presence, pray that the Lord will, will intervene in our lives and help us to see how he wants to inter, infuse his divine presence into all the things that we do so that our family life our home life, our ordinary life, can become a means of growing in love of God and love of our neighbor.